Now, in order to understand our New Testament reading from 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 to 14, and in fact to understand this whole season of Advent and all things apocalyptic, we need to understand that there are false teachers that saturate their false teaching throughout the media, throughout academia, and all of the trusted institutions. And they all, in lockstep, say this one thing from 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 4, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Therefore, the false teachers of this age reject the reality of the second coming. They reject that with the second coming of the Lord, there will be a world-transforming upheaval. They reject it as unbelievable. They reject it as unimaginable because for thousands and thousands of years, the world has gone on just as the way it did from the beginning. And they tell us that nature is steadily consistent. And this thought of an inbreaking of the Son of God and a transformation of this created order is out of the question. Isaiah 40 starting in verse 6, tells us all flesh is like grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and when the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Second Peter chapter 3, 10 to 12 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burnt up and dissolved, and the earth and all its works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of person ought you be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heaven, heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. So this false teaching that we have already highlighted preaches, preaches to us that we need to be devoted to the world so that it makes sense that Isaiah and John the Baptist and Peter should offer us a very simple statement that the world is going to burn up, that we're not to be devoted to this world. In other words, don't devote yourself to the accumulation of money. Don't give yourself over to sexual immorality. Don't build monuments of praise for men because it's all going to be burnt up. It's all going to come to nothing. Instead, devote yourselves to the inbreaking of the Son of God and of the transformation of this created order. Devote yourselves to the apocalypse of the now, the now apocalypse and the then apocalypse. And all this seems to be the emphasis of our lectionary texts today, and that's what they're hitting on this morning. So let's zero in on these texts, these verses. Let's look at all of them more closely and see what Peter is urging us to do as well. So verse 10 of our text from Peter says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Now originally, 
it was Jesus who put that together uh, with these two things, didn't he? The day of the Lord and the thief coming in the night. Jesus originally put that stuff together. And the day of the Lord and that idea that it would be like a thief in the night is what Jesus said. He said, therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. So Jesus dares to compare his second coming with a thief coming in the night. Then Paul picks up this analogy and applies it to the Thessalonian church. He says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then suddenly destruction will come upon them like as labor's pains come on a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for the day, for that day to surprise you like a thief. So three things are clearly involved in this notion of the day of the Lord coming like a thief. The first is the day of the Lord involves the coming of Jesus Christ. The second is it involves suddenness. It involves unexpectedness and destruction of unbelievers. And thirdly, it involves deliverance and salvation to those who are awake and doing what the Lord has called them to do. Now, Peter goes a step further in unfolding this meaning of the day of the Lord. In verse 10, let's read it again. He says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burnt up and dissolved and the earth and all its works that are done on it will be exposed. In verse 12, he uses a different phrase, not the day of the Lord, but the day of God. They are the same thing, and that is the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. By heavens, he's meaning the skies, and the heavenly bodies will be melt, will melt as they burn. Now let's pause for a minute and think about what he means by the day of the Lord and how it brings this world to an end in a fiery cataclysm. In the Old Testament, the term the day of the Lord is very common. And what it means, it, 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 what it meant was there was a future time, either not far in the future or very far in the future, a day in which the Lord would come and he would vindicate his holy name. He would bring destruction upon his enemies who refused to repent and he would gather his people into a new righteous kingdom where there is peace. Now, let's look at some of those passages. Right at the top of the list, we would put the one that Peter quoted on the day of Pentecost from Joel chapter 2, verse 30 to 31. God himself is speaking and describing the day of the Lord. He says, I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall turn to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And then Zephaniah. Zephaniah is one of the prophets who spoke after the Babylon captivity, very near to the end of the Old Testament. And he said, the great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and destruction, 
a day of darkness and gloom, day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like, a, like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of wrath of the Lord, on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end, he will make all the inhabitants of the earth. Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament, spoke of the day of the Lord like this. He says, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. If you don't know what a fuller is, it's a launderer, someone who launders clothes. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in, his, in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from a stall. So Peter's not saying anything new. The expectation that the wrath of God would one day boil over on this earth and God would do away with all ungodly and their works. This reality was preached over eight centuries before Peter wrote down a single word in this second epistle. Now, it might seem strange to us at first, it seems strange to me at least, that God who made this world looked at it and said, this is good. Then he goes and burns it up. That doesn't sit well with a person who looks out on the world and sees beauty in it. But let's all, remind, let's all remember and remind ourselves from Romans chapter 8, verse 20 to 21, it says the natural world also became subject to futility and was enslaved to decay when humanity fell into sin. Paul puts it this way. He says the creation was subject to the futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. Now, Paul does not tell us how that's going to happen. How will this great transformation of creation, of creation's order happen? So that the lion may lay down with the calf, and the, or the lion, sorry, lay down with the lamb, and, and, and there, there will be no death and there will be no decay. So I'm persuaded to think that Peter's description of the end, in view of Paul's statement, this does not mean that the fiery judgment will obliterate creation, but rather he wants us to think in terms of a purging and a supernatural transformation that this world uh, will, will happen to this world into a new world. And one of the hints of that is found in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 6 to 7. He says, by which the world 
that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. We see, we can see Peter comparing the destruction of the world by fire at the end of the age with the destruction of the world by water at the Genesis flood. And, 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 and the water did not obliterate the world, it cleansed the world. It purged the world. And the world was, in a sense, made new. So to be sure, it's going to be more radical. To be sure, it's going to be more upheaval. And there's going to be more deep reaching because nature itself is going to be changed. And that's why Peter uses language like dissolved, like melt, like consuming fire. Although Peter's language is intense, it is terrific, it is monumentous, it is weighty. It does not demand finality. It does not demand extinction. There will be a continual or a con there will be a continuance between what God made at the beginning and what will be at the end. In verse 13, Peter lays hold of this promise from Isaiah. He says, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness will dwell. We don't have to think of something so radically different that it's unimaginable. The, des the descriptions of the new heavens and the new earth in Isaiah talks of things we know, only they are perfected, and all the old evils will be done away with. Therefore, what is good and pure and beautiful in the creator, in creation will be purged and I believe preserved in spite of this amazing description of fiery judgment. Peter gets his uh, expectation of the new heavens and the new earth from Isaiah 65, 17 to 18, where it says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. Now, when Peter goes a step further and stresses that this new world will be a world in which righteousness dwells, he's telling us that the old world was destroyed because of unrighteousness, because of sin. And he warns us that in the new world, those who forsook the way of the righteousness of faith aren't going to be included in this new thing that God is doing. In verse 11, Peter, Peter uh, motivates us with these words. He says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, that is the world as we know it, the sky, the earth and everything on it, what sort of people ought we be in lives of holiness and godliness. Now here is the big idea. In light of Advent, in light of the second coming of Jesus, in light of the apocalypse, in light of the world, in light that the world is going to burn up, how is that, how is that motivation for holiness and godliness? How is that motivation for holiness 
and godliness. Most people today, and I think it was true in Peter's day as well, most people try to find meaning in life by building something that's not just here today and gone tomorrow. Most people try to overcome the horizon of finality and the horizon of death by making something significant that lasts. Some people try to build equity and gain a great sense of success by looking at their home and saying, I own that. Or others flip through their portfolio and think how wise they were in investing when it was low and then they sold when it was high. Others build a professional reputation through working hard and long hours, and they gain a sense of power and success by thinking about how many people are dependent on them for their leadership and how many people look to them to make wise decisions. Other people try and build meaning into their lives with artistic expression and creativity. They gain a sense of power by looking at the things that they've written or the things that they've painted or the things that they've shaped. And others, perhaps with less artistic ability, try to build the same kind of power through hobbies and collections. You know, I've got the biggest collection of bugs and beetles, you know, or, or coins or something. And we boast about how shiny our car is or how our new Apple computer or, or how our new iPhone looks and on and on and on it goes. We want to make, we want to build, we want to have something significant so, or, or some kind of significance. The implication of Advent in Peter's words in verse 11 is this. The only thing that you're going to survive, the only thing that is going to survive the fiery judgment of God at the end of this age are expressions of holiness and godliness. They're the only two things that are going to survive the fiery judgment of God. A life lived for this world will go naked into judgment. And a life lived for Christ will be laden with riches on the last day. And the lesson is this. Put your life under the spotlight of eternity. View things the way God views them. And then devote yourself every day in all that you do to what will last and not what will not last, not, will, not what will be burnt up. So according to Isaiah, according to Mark, we are to be an Advent voice that cries in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Why do we do that? Because all flesh is grass and all its beauty is like a flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Go up to the high mountain, O Zion. Herald for, herald for good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald for good news. Lift up. Fear not. Say to the city of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm, rule, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. 
And according to 2 Peter 3.12, if we do this, if we live lives of holiness and godliness, you will hasten the coming of the day of God. Now, what does that mean, to hasten the day? Let's look back on verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient. He is patient toward you, not willing or not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is holding back the day because he wants you and me to repent. So that must mean that if you do repent and lead a life of godliness and holiness, you remove one of the reasons for the delay. Therefore, Peter concludes that a life that repents and walks in holiness, in that sense, hastens the day of the Lord. Now, it's clear that we don't hasten the day in an absolute sense. It says in Acts chapter 1, verse 7, that God has appointed by his authority, the day doesn't get faster as, 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 as far as God is concerned. And Jesus said in Mark chapter 13, verse 32, only the Father knows the day and the hour when the Son of Man will come. But from our standpoint, from our standpoint, from our limited vantage point, we can hasten the day of the Lord in the sense that we remove any hindrances from it. We fulfill the conditions of that coming day, which according to Scripture is the gospel must be preached to all the nations beyond Jerusalem and there's an ingathering of the Gentiles before the end comes. We are in a nation, even a continent, that's beyond Jerusalem, aren't we? And most of us here are Gentiles, aren't we? Finally, I want to look at one more thing with you all from verses 13 to 14, and that is a very different motivation for godliness and purity. What is, here's what Peter does not say. Okay, let me, let me red pen that, underline it. This is what Peter does not say. Be careful for what you might lose in, in the age to come when things are burnt up. He doesn't say that. But he does say this. Look at what you have gained in the new heavens and the new earth. Let's have a look at what he says. He says, according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Now, how in the world can people like us be found without spot and blemish at the coming of Jesus? I think that there's a parallel to this verse uh, that gives us the answer. And if we want to look in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, this verse gives us a parallel between being without spot and blemish and living at peace at, and a life that experiences all that. So John says, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. That parallels living at peace, doesn't it? And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That parallels being without spot and blemish. 
But notice that both fellowship and cleansing, as John says it, or peace and spotlessness, as Peter says it, are dependent upon walking in the light, as God is in the light. That's what it depends on. When Peter says, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, he means just the same as John says, walk in the light as he is in the light. And so the big question is, how do we find the power to do that? To walk in the light as God is in the light. And the answer, as you may have guessed, comes from Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 4. It says, His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who calls us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us the precious and very great promises, so that through him you may become partakers of the divine nature. It's when we set our eyes, it's when we set our affections on the promise of Advent. It is on the promise of the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells and in which the glory and the excellency of God are going to cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. When we relish in that promise and hope in that promise and live towards that promise, scooping up as many people as we can along the way, then the power of God will fire us with zeal and purity and give us the strength to overcome all temptation. So in summary, as we close, this Advent, there are two motivations for the sanctification or the, or, the, or the dedication of our lives that God gives us in all of these texts that we've looked at this morning. Firstly, the only thing that will survive the fiery judgment at the end of the age is holiness and godliness. And everything else that we've devoted our lives to will be burnt up. Therefore, we're just, if, 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 if that's all we do, if we just devote ourselves to things that aren't dealt with or aren't a part of godliness and holiness, then we're just gathering up firewood whenever we do anything except live for Jesus. Don't gather up firewood. The other motivation is that there, that there is coming a new heavens and a new earth that are so bright with promise, so bright with righteousness and in glory. How can we not declare that? How can we not call people to that? How can we not walk in the light as he is in the light? How can we not put the lamp in front of us until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. How can we not do that? These are all very important questions that we should ask ourselves in this Advent season. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that gives us hope. You have promised us a new heaven and a new earth that will be free from ungodliness. I praise you that you have explain future events in your word and that the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire 
for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. Help each one of us to share the gospel with all we meet so that many may come to a saving knowledge of Christ and be spared a part in that lake of fire. And we pray this in the good name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.